Hey everyone, it's Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living. Today I wanted to reshare a conversation that I had with the actor and musician Dennis Quaid, who released the album Fallen, a gospel record for sinners, last year. Make sure to come back on February 20th as we kick off a brand new season of Biscuits and Jam with chef and founder of World Central Kitchen, Jose Andres. We'll see you soon. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm your host, Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with a guy who's been a major Hollywood star for about as long as I've been alive. But before he starred in Breaking Away or The Big Easy, Dennis Quaid was a kid from Houston, Texas, who grew up loving Elvis Presley and wanting to play rock and roll. His early success as an actor led him to a major career in movies, but he never gave up his musical ambitions. As the longtime frontman of Dennis Quaid and the Sharks, he's built a reputation as a legitimate, high-energy rock star. Recently, though, he's moved to Nashville and produced an album called Fallen, a gospel record for sinners that reconciles his rediscovered faith with years of hard living and addiction. We'll talk about all that, his complicated history with the Baptist Church, and the first time he saw Willie Nelson on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Well, Dennis Quaid, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thanks, Sid. <laughs> Great to have you on the show. Good to be here. Where am I reaching you right now? I'm sitting in my manager's office in Nashville. I moved here, actually, coming up three years ago. Yeah, I know that, which I think is so great. I mean, you've lived a lot of places. What's your favorite thing about Nashville? It's so collegial here. It really is. Just the people in general and then people in music and the music business. There's a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of rooting for people and there's a lot of helping each other out. Even big name people, they still like going over to each other's houses and just playing guitars. Do you feel like you and your wife have really kind of found your people in Nashville in a fairly short time? Yeah, I really do. My grandfather actually came from about 30 miles from here to Texas in 1903 in a covered wagon. So we're coming back. I have a lot of cousins here. So you got some roots. Yeah. Did you have a songwriting community when you were living in California? Yeah, but it was very scattered out and you never heard about anybody getting together or for a write. You know, there was a great music scene going on back in LA in the 70s when I first moved out there in the 80s and the 90s, but it's kind of left. You know? Yeah. And now you can just go right down the street and be with some of the best songwriters in the country. Yeah. I mean, I used to hang out with Bob Seger back in the 90s. Really? We had a really good time together. Late 80s, 90s. Yeah. And, you know, and a few other people, but not like here. It's so vibrant here. Yeah. Music coming out of the pores. That's for sure. Well, you grew up in Bel Air, mm -hmm. Texas, which is a suburb of Houston, right? Right. Tell me a little bit about your hometown. I've heard you say that you could actually walk to school. Yeah, I was three blocks away. I lived on Maple Street. It was the epitome of the lower middle class, middle class America, post-World War II. So I was born there in 54, started going to school, I guess, 59, 60. And 
it was a different era. It was a great boyhood. There were like nine or 10 boys on my block. People had come back from the war and they started having babies. And so, you know, like a gang of kids, it was just fantastic. I had Little League Baseball about eight blocks away. And I'm really glad I had the childhood that I had. Went down to the First Baptist Church of Bel Air. It was about 10 blocks away. We had a pool, a neighborhood pool, recreational thing. It was heaven for a boy. Do you still have family there? I moved my mother from there to Austin because I moved to Austin about 10 years ago. and I moved her there because she was aging and I wanted to have her be closer to me and taking care of her. And I think all of my other relatives have moved out. A bunch of them moved here, actually. So when I go back, it's hard to recognize the place. Even the house that I grew up in was under six feet of water during the hurricane that happened a few years back. And I went there for a first responders charity concert to help those people out. But it was gone. Oh, after Harvey. Yeah. Everybody had all their furniture out in the front yard. And I think the house was bulldozed after that. But you still feel really close to that community, it sounds like. Let's say I feel close to the memory. And there are some people that I went to elementary school with, I found out by going back there and doing that concert, that are still around. And they're the sweetest people. Mm. You know, Dennis, I always talk about food a little bit on this podcast, and especially when my guest is from Texas. Who was the cook in your family? My mom. Yeah. Yeah, my dad could make bacon really well. <laughs> that was about it. Well, tell me a little bit about your mom's cooking. What were some of her specialties or what was she known for? Chicken fried steak, fried chicken. We would have calf's liver once a week. And it was just this rotation, you know, chicken and dumplings, and salmon cakes, fresh green beans, and mashed potatoes with lots of gravy. First, you have to have your bread, put gravy on that, and put gravy all over everything because it was gravy and stuck to your ribs. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that <laughs> can of bacon fat that was in a coffee can that sat in the refrigerator because you didn't have disposals back then, so you put that stuff down the sink. <laughs> uh, and that got a lot of use, I guess. Oh, yeah, a lot of use, yeah. That's how you made your gravy, man. Yeah. Calves liver. Wow. Calves liver, yeah. I still like it, actually. I haven't had it in a long time. They don't have that at the Palm, though, where I just ate. So. <laughs> what about the holidays? Was that a big thing for y'all and for your mom? Yes, and no. I mean, summer was the greatest. That was just one big, long holiday. Christmas was good, but it was also one of those things where my mom always wanted to put Jesus in Christmas instead of Santa Claus. You know what I mean? So we hardly ever decorated our house a little bit. I'm not saying they were strict or anything like that, but we just weren't the ones to do all the big decorations and all that stuff. We'd have a tree. And I loved Christmas, actually, up until I was like, 12, when he got clothes for Christmas one year. Because <laughs> you don't know what to get a 12-year-old, so he got clothes. Does that kind of ruin it for you? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Dennis, I saw that you lost your mom a few years ago at the age of 92 or something. Is that right? 
93, actually. She barely made it. You mentioned the church, and you've got this album coming out that's got a lot of close ties to the church. Was your mom a religious person? Yeah, she was very much of the spirit. She was a Christian, and she was raised like that. My grandfather, her father, he was a farmer and worked as a wildcat on oil rigs and things like that. And he also was a tent preacher to make ends meet for a while and sold Bibles door to door. So we went to church quite a bit growing up. And I don't know, I became disillusioned with the church, actually, around that same time, about 12. I'd forgotten my offering for Sunday school. I really got ripped for that. And, you know, my 12-year-old point of view of what hypocrisy was, church wasn't supposed to make you feel bad. And this was the Baptist church? Yeah. I think I made it a lot bigger than it was. But anyway, I looked around the world, and what they were saying in church was either hellfire and damnation, or it was these pretty sayings that didn't really apply to real life. I think my parents were getting a divorce also around that time. And so I think that maybe kind of splintered things as well. Anyway, in high school, I read this short novel, Siddhartha, Herman Hesse. It's really the story of Buddha, sort of hidden in novel form. And I was really quite taken about it. That kind of started me on a path. And I read the Bible. I read it cover to cover at the age of 19. And I've read it like four times now, once every 12, 15 years. It changes a lot. I can continue on if you want. Yeah, well, I'm really curious about this because it's so connected to the new album and the path that you've been on. Right. And I'm curious about the church itself, too. I mean, was this like a pretty formal place that you went to? Yeah, I got baptized at the age of nine. The Little League assistant baseball coach of my brother came to the house, talked to him about getting baptized. He was 13, and so I was listening to them while I was watching TV, and I decided that I was going to get baptized, too. And, yeah, that was quite an experience. I thought that things would be really a lot different, and they were for like a day or two, but you know, I'm supposed to have Jesus inside me now, but yet all these things are going on that don't match up with what I said it was going to be. But anyway, after reading Siddhartha, I think I became a seeker, really mm. finding out about other things. I read the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapada, I read the Quran, I read all of those books, and then everything was about filling up a hole, really. Because everybody fills that emptiness up with something, you know? Yeah. And those somethings are fun, and then they're fun with problems, and they become problems. Then into my mid-30s, you know, really had a bad, uh, bad thing going on with cocaine, I think, it had taken over me. And had one of those white light experiences, and I checked myself into rehab because I saw myself dead in five years or losing everything I had or in jail or whatever. And so I'm glad that happened. 30 days and I got it. I quit. And I spent the next two to three years really gnashing my teeth, staying away from all that. And also because of that hole that was still there that needed to be filled. And that's when I went back and read the Bible again. And this time I was very struck by the red words of Jesus. And from that, what started to happen was a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's really what it's all about. What he was saying was the good news, which was about heaven, 
but it was also about teaching us how to have heaven here on earth and to live that in our hearts. And of course, we're not perfect and that doesn't go on all the time, but it really finally clicked. And it wasn't all at once. It's just something has become more and more real to me as time has gone by. Well, it seems like it's become very profound for you and you just have a much, much different experience with spirituality than you did as a kid, obviously. And you've been on quite the journey. Yeah, but at the same time, it's also the same when I go back to those times when I was five or six in Sunday school. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's only when I, my head started to think, you know. <laughs> After the break, I'll talk more with Dennis Quaid about some of his musical heroes from Johnny Cash to Chris Christopherson and his new album, Fallen. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with actor, musician, and now gospel artist, Dennis Quaid. Well, Dennis, I want to talk to you about religious experiences with music, so to speak. When did you hear something that really set your soul on fire musically for the first time? Oh, that'd be Elvis. There was a song, too, Purple People Eater that was going on back then. Blue suede shoes. Of course, that was Carl Perkins, but Elvis did it. Hank Williams. Yeah. Eddie Arnold, I really liked. I'm just talking about a kid in the backseat and the parents playing the radio, you know? You know, I also think about a kid growing up in Texas in the 60s. You were surrounded by so much music from Texas and so many people, I mean... I got to ask about Willie Nelson. I mean, Willie just turned 90 this year. And as someone who grew up around that, did you discover him kind of back then or later? Or what does his music mean to you? I didn't know of Willie Nelson, but when I was 11, on Labor Day weekend, three years in a row, we went to this dude ranch, which is in Hill Country of Texas. My parents got tickets and saw Willie Nelson. He had just come back from uh, Nashville. And he had really short hair and long sideburns around the like early mid-60s. Of course, fast-forwarding to Jerry Jeff Walker and Waylon Jennings, Willie, and the whole Lukudbach thing that grew out of there it had a profound effect on me. That whole Austin scene and the Armadillo and the rise of Texas music. In fact, I just got invited to play the 50th Lukudbach reunion. Oh, that's great. What an honor. I jumped at it. It was really fantastic. Jerry Jeff became a friend of mine in the last couple of years of his life. And I was really mad that he left, but I felt like we got kind of close. We talked a lot on the phone and, you know, just saw him every time I went to Austin. Mm. I want to just say a few names and just tell me kind of the first thing that comes to your mind. Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash is my original. Uh, I mean, I knew of Johnny Cash, but when I started playing guitar is when I really got into Johnny Cash. Got my first guitar at 12. And I started playing Johnny Cash right off the bat. For one thing, he's easy for a young guitarist. It's simple chords. And I could never shred a guitar. I knew I was never going to do that. So songwriting was my defense. And Johnny's songs, they're stories. And... 
that just really stay with you. And he's simple, love a sense of humor. I wanted to be him, that rebel thing that he had going on, which is really what my record is. You have this rebel outlaw thing, and you got this man of God at the same time. Yeah. I never met him, but I did talk to him in June. He was in the hospital when I was doing Great Balls of Fire or something, and they called. Wow. Charlie Pride. I remember when Charlie Pride came out in, in the 60s, and my dad loved him. I didn't really grow up in a kind of racial atmosphere or whatever. And when he came out, nobody knew he was black because Jack Clement, who was also my mentor, by the way, he put his record out without his face on it. And he got accepted, and then he used to go out and do concerts, and he'd come out and say to people, I guess you're all wondering where I got this permanent tan. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, he was something else. And in fact, I went and met him and got the rights to do his story a year before he died. He died of COVID. I know. And we're still going to do it. We have a script written for it and everything. His wife, Rosine, she's still here. and She's an incredible lady. Hmm. One more I want to ask you about, and that's Chris Christopherson. He was a huge hero of mine, starting from about 17 it's hard for anybody to come close to him and take the ribbon from your hair. And Bobby McGee. Yeah. They'll be singing Bobby McGee in 500 years. Yeah. One of the songs that's on the record is On My Way to Heaven that I wrote about 30 years ago. Tanya Tucker heard this recording I did of it, and she called me up out of the blue. I hadn't talked to her since my 20s when she was my leading lady in this TV movie. And she said, I love this song and I want to do it. I went, wow. Okay, yeah, of course, you can do it. And then she said, okay. And then she called me back two minutes later and said, Chris Christopherson wants to do it too. So she went off and recorded it and then uh, going to do Chris's part in Shangri-La Studios out in the West, you know, where Dylan and the band and all of them are. So I go in there and I, there's only two studios. I walk in the wrong one and there's Neil Young at the board. So the <laughs> backed out to go to the next one. And there's Chris, Tanya's doing the lyrics with him. And it was just, I had the luckiest life. All the stuff that's happened to me and I've gotten to be around and I got to pinch myself. And he was, he's just the greatest person. Most soulful eyes. And what a story. And what a great man. And what a legend. Yeah. Now I'm on my way to heaven. On my way to heaven I'm on my way to heaven So I can't be staying long Well, Dennis, you just seem to have landed in such a great place and being in Nashville in the heart of it all. And now you've got this album coming out. It's called Fallen, a gospel record for sinners. And I love the title. Tell me about that. I mean, what made you want to add that tagline to the album name or make it part of the album name? Well, because it's me, you know, I didn't want to get too churchy with it. And in fact, I had two producers on it, Ben Isaacs, who was incredible, bluegrass and in the faith community of music, very established and incredible. I mean, the guy's a genius. He really is. And so I have that part, which to me, represents the authenticity of those hymns from church and way of doing them, which I really wanted to have. 
And then I worked with David Ferguson. David Ferguson was a protege of Jack Clement, who was also a mentor of mine going way back. And from that, it just sort of had the church and the bars. <laughs> Jesus went to bars. He went to the wrong side of the tracks to find those lambs that were over there astray. You know, and I relate with them as well. But, you know, the people who have good hearts and have the spirit and all that stuff just, just have to be people in church. We all have that duality inside us. We have that angel and that devil sitting on each shoulder. And I just wanted to reflect that. Well, you're going to get right into it. I mean, you start out the title track, Fallen, mm -hmm. which starts out talking about a joy ride down the devil's highway. Yeah. My eternal soul hanging by a thread. <laughs> it's about riding with the devil, which is kind of personal for me, really. It's about 20 years of my life, really. And it's also the story of the prodigal son, the son who asked for his dad's inheritance and dad gives it to him and he goes off and he wastes it when wine women and song winds up in a pigsty and two years later he wants to go back home but he feels ashamed but he does and there's his father there to welcome him yeah but the other brother the one who stayed the good one who did everything his father didn't waste nothing he got really mad about that and you know I've done everything you wanted me to do. And dad says, well, can't you understand? My son was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. But the brother is still mad. Right. Because now he's going to have to share that inheritance with this other brother. And he won't come into the banquet. Yeah. And that's the whole story of the Bible. Go back to Cain and Abel, Isaac and Esau, and the whole thing. But two brothers who are at odds with each other and cannot reconcile. That's the story of the Bible. Here's some fault. I'm falling. I'm the prodigal. All I want to do is go back home. Go back home. And there's a lot going on in that song, isn't there? Yeah, there is. But, uh, yeah, I wrote that about five years back, and I felt like that was really the start. It wasn't conscious, but starting with Fallen, and my wife actually made the order. And by making the order, she actually made a kind of a story out of it in the sense that it's a spiritual journey that starts out at the bottom and at the end is on my way to heaven. You know, it ends with I'll fly away. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, too, because you've got some great classic songs on there, classic old hymns, Amazing Grace, mm -hmm. What a Friend We Have in Jesus, I'll Fly Away. I mean, are these songs that you remember from being a kid or that you discovered more recently? Yeah, there were songs from growing up at the Baptist church. What a Friend We Have in Jesus was my mom's favorite hymn. Life is Like a Mountain Railway. Harry Dean Stanton taught me that song that was on the first movie set I was ever on, which was Missouri Breaks, and my brother was doing it. Yeah, I became close with Harry. And in fact, on the front of that song, there's a tape of me and an, an older guy that I recorded on my phone. That's Harry. Uh, we'd done that like two years before, and I think it's the last recording that Harry ever made before he died. He was like 92 at the time, but he had that real old-time way of singing that I believe was from 1884. 
Yeah, and dress the part too. Yeah, I love songs that sound like they were written by anonymous. Yeah, like they've just always been there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they just have. Well, Dennis, you've been playing for years with your band, Dennis Quaid and the Sharks. Are you guys still going to keep doing the rock and roll thing? Yeah, I think if the opportunity arises, but not as much. I think we've done a couple of gigs since COVID, one or two. But I've moved here as well, which kind of precludes a lot of things. I also started branching out and going out by myself for the first time since I was 19 just me and a piano and a guitar and just have a personal connection with the audience, which was kind of frightening at first. And it turns out you really had a whole lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to ask, do you and Laura see yourselves in Nashville for the duration? Oh, yeah. Oh, this is definitely home to me. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Houston and I still have a house there because my kids are still in school and I'm there every two weeks during the school year for two weeks. But I really love Nashville. This is such a great community. It's so collegial and familiar. Have you found a community of faith there? Yes, we have. We're still a little bit church shopping, I, I got to admit. But uh, yeah, we definitely have a whole community around us, which is so much easier to find here because it just comes up in every day conversation here. Well, Dennis, I just have one more question for you. You've spent a lot of years in Hollywood and a lot of time in studios and on movie sets and a lot of time far from where you grew up. What does it mean to you to be a Texan? So glad I'm a Texan. I really am because really have a definite feeling of where I come from and the place. That whole thing of Texas history that we learned in the fourth grade. You know, I got to play Sam Houston in the Alamo too, by the way. <laughs> it's so big and there's so many Texans out there in the world. And they always come back, they go out, they come back, love the place, every part of it. Well, Dennis Quaid, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Hey, Sid, I had a great time. Thank you. You got any gravy for those biscuits, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> we got some around here somewhere. Yeah, because that's my kind of Texas breakfast. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dennis Quaid. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback, as always. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. <laughs>